Hello and welcome to another episode of the Looking After Nature podcast, bringing you close to nature and wildlife in Hampshire. My name is Andy Davidson and I'm on here once again with my co-host Carly Harrod. Hi Carly. Hi Andy. I live in the city, I live in Southampton, but you live out in the countryside, don't you? Yes, I'm in the middle of Downs, I'm surrounded by farmland and it's what we're going to be discussing today, the farming. Yeah, so humans have been farming in the UK for at least six and a half thousand years. And our farmland covers around 70% of the UK. Because we've been farming and shaping our landscape around for centuries, many of the green spaces we look after were once grazed, and we continue to do this by conservation grazing. We are lucky today to be talking to Rob Groves, the senior farm ranger at Manor Farm. Hi, Rob. Hi, Andy. Quite often the people we talk to have been in donkey's years, some of the people on the podcast, but you're quite new blood, aren't you, Rob? Uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, I joined the uh, service back in the autumn of 2019, so I've been here sort of uh, 18 months now. So where were you before you joined us? I had spent a year working for Natural England, um, running their only in-hand farm within the whole country, um, and that was up on Salisbury Plain, looking after some really, really important short grass and national nature reserve that they have there, um, with some, uh, well, with the oldest registered herd of English longhorns in the country. And you're pro- from a proper farming background as well, aren't you, I think? Yeah, so uh, I grew up on a farm in North Gloucestershire, spent all of my childhood there at university and didn't make my father very proud and went to do conservation at university. So he was uh, wanting me to go into farming and it wasn't really something I was interested in. Did conservation at university, um, a HND, which I was really, 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 really happy with. Um, and as part of that, I did a year in employment and I was really lucky enough to spend that time with the National Trust um, up on the Cotswolds um, with their conservation grazing team that they have there. So that's where my interest in conservation grazing started, really. I was really lucky to spend that 12 months with them learning what they do, why they do it, um, and then sort of learning how I can apply that to my future um, and then I was really lucky then to actually get a National Trust Livestock Ranger job. Um, and that was um, for the South Downs team based near Midhurst. And I spent eight years there, really sort of honing the conservation grazing that we were doing and our all our in-hand livestock. So we had a real mixture of cattle, sheep and pigs on a mixture of sites as well. So I was managing lowland heathland which is really important and really rare in the uk um downland and a bit of lowland grassland and parkland as well um so that's sort of where i sort of cut my jib i guess and then i was really lucky like i said before to spend a year with natural england managing their in-hand farm there and getting to know sort of the history behind something like that so the natural england farm is you could probably say as parts of the National Nature Reserve haven't been touched by humans since the Stone Age. So since Stonehenge went up, which was actually only a mile away from the farm, and you can still see the ancient uh, field markings. You can see that the ground hasn't been improved and it was really just about using the longhorns to keep that system going and to keep that incredibly rare piece of grassland, which um, was is uh, reportedly one of the highest concentrations of burnt tip orchids in the UK and I was lucky enough to see that in my first year there and I have to say that was incredible like 30,000 spikes of these burnt tip orchids was incredible so if anyone ever gets a chance take a trip to Parsonage Down 
and you'll be amazed in May. Yeah, so burnt tip orchids, they're, they're quite rare. and They're also quite tiny as well, aren't they? They're only an inch or two high, aren't they? Yeah, they're really susceptible to overgrazing. So it was, that site shows how the using grazing lightly and all year round, but then also moving the animals around consistently means that you can consistently like encourage the burnt tips and that even during through changes of management they've still managed to keep the burnt tip orchids going and you don't find them on many other sites in the UK. Oh, you use the term conservation grazing a bit but really I mean we need to make decisions doing that and more intensive farming because I mean we talked about improved grassland and some of you might think that's but that's been improved yeah. for food production isn't it? Yes so I think in its simplistic term the difference between conservation grazing and regular farming or what we might call intensive farming is that intensive farming is primarily driven by food production and economy so you're trying to maximize everything you can, you can get out of that piece of land or that animal in order to to produce the most food and the most profit for the farmer whereas conservation grazing is more about using livestock to enhance the natural environment so on many of the systems I've worked on in the past, economics is not the driving force for why we were using the conservation grazers. We were using them in order to, in, to have the biodiversity increase. So it was about moving many of our unfavourable condition sites into favourable recovering sort of into that area so that we were looking after that environment and ensuring that there is a place for nature the other important thing about conservation grazing is about mimicking what humans have done in the past, because a lot of our natural, what we think is natural landscape, so Salisbury Plain or lowland heath, has only come about by traditional farming, subsistence farming. So especially for heathland, that really came about because it was land that was deemed not economically viable for the landowner. So he gave it over to the local villages as commoners, and then they had the right to take various things. So they would take firewood, which would clear the site. They would then take bracken, which would then, again, clear the site some more. And then they would be able to graze various types of livestock. And that's what enabled the heathland to take to take effect. And for, for that specific, and downland and other sites, by stopping doing those subsistence-based tasks, it's resulted in a loss of biodiversity. And so the conservation grazing is really a way of continuing on in a modern way what they were doing so we can still look after these really really important places which are havens for specific wildlife uh, and foreign fauna but also what you're doing is mimicking what the wild animals were doing back in the stone age because you would have had i mean in britain we had woolly mammoths wild ponies uh, there was a type of giant cow called an auroch um there was um bison and all sorts of animals which basically our farm animals have replaced haven't they yeah so they have and that's where sort of conservation grazing is moving into sort of new territory in this thing we called sort of holistic grazing or a holistic approach to conservation grazing and that is more to do with mimicking those large herbivores and uh, looking at how large groups of herbivores so specifically they've looked at wildebeest in the african plains and they see that they don't stay on the same bit of grazing for more than a couple of days and then they move on to a fresh bit. But they won't come back to that original piece of grazing for at least three months. And that is because the grass, the grasses take three months to regrow. So the animals have worked out their cycle of, of moving around. So they're always grazing on fresh grass. 
So that's the other, that's what a lot of more detailed conservation grazing systems are looking at now. And that's something that sort of we did on the down and a few times, and it was about grazing concentrated amount of animals on a small spot for a short period, then moving on to fresh grazing, then coming back to that area two months later, which was both encouraging the grass growth and the redevelopment of the soil, because that's really important as a soil structure. But also it was great for the invertebrates because the fresh dung, every time you're moving, all of the, the, the insects were moving and then they're obviously food for uh, birds and they're great pollinators. So when you sort of mash all that together, it's, it is really mimicking what's going on in the wild. And we're just doing it on a smaller scale and on a scale that we can manage and see real good results from. Because that's the one thing that actually you can't replace with, with, you know, with artificial mowing or cutting, you know, is that little elements like the dung they produce or the different types of grazing they do, isn't it? Yeah, so like the dung especially, so it's about nutrient recycling. It's, um, it depends on what your system you're going for. So um, so if you want to just keep the nutrients as they are, so you're just about nutrient recycling. So you're breaking down those real complex grasses into dung, which then dung beetles can get to, which then also then seeps back into the soil, strengthening the soil structure, which is a real problem with intensive farming in the past is we've really, really harmed our soil structure. And that's a real big carbon sink. And also by harming our soil structure, we're allowing water to get into the, our river system really, really quick. So it's a, it's helping with that as well and you've got sort of like with sort of using mechanical it has its place especially if you're trying to remove nutrients so for example on a lot of hay meadows have come about because they're low nutrient because they have had centuries of cutting and removing the grass and you're not adding new nutrients so that's allowed the wildflowers to um proliferate because they the grass coarse grasses our modern grasses don't like low nutrient environments so that allows all the wildflowers to come in and again, all the pollinators and all the birds that go with that. So mechanical does have its place, but then the, the animals also help to create a mosaic of habitat. So farming often results in, well, modern intensive farming results in monocultures. So you normally get a field of rye grass or you get a field of pure wheat or that kind of thing. And that's really bad for a wildlife because that's not offering a particular variety for all the different species that rely on different niches. So by using livestock, we're creating more of a mosaic habitat. So you're creating areas of nice grasslands. We're using, say, cattle or sheep. Um, sheep will graze like really, really close to the ground, a real fine structure, but cows will create a more detailed edge. So you've got like a real nice structure between the grass moving into scrub and then moving into the woodland, which is great habitat for lots of different species. And then the cows as well especially they're great at creating lots of divots in the ground so they will create lots of holes which again the vertebrates love they'll create lots of areas where some standing water can stay um and that again is really encouraging and really great for invertebrates yes i mean it's quite different in the way they different animals graze because a sheep will you know they sort of nibble close don't they and they're just like a little fine lawn but cows they use their tongue don't they to wrap around and pull out as well as bite i think don't they yeah, so we uh, sort of term it as like selective and non-selective grazers, really. So cows, they have a very, very muscular tongue and they use that to wrap around and rip the grass out by, by the roots. So often they're really good at coarse grasses. So if you've got an area, say, of downland that has got some really, really old rank grass in, you can use your cows to be able to pull all that old grass out and they'll, they will help rejuvenate it that way. Sheep, on the other hand, they, they have two sets of teeth 
uh, both the bottom and top and they're nibblers so they will nibble really really tight to the ground um and the same with ponies they will nibble really really tight to the ground the, the main difference is, is that with the selective and non-selective is that cows are relatively selective they don't tend to eat wild flowers they'll always go for the grasses first so they're great on areas where you want to preserve your wild flowers whereas sheep are sheep and ponies are notorious for nibbling every flower head off possible going but they are great on down sheep are synonymous with downland because they graze the grass really really tight um and then you've also got you can add in like pigs they're great conservation grazers if you're looking to turn over ground we used to use them on heathland so they're great at breaking up the rhizomes of both the bracken and the rhododendron and once they'd done the they'd done the, the heavy plowing we'd then be able to reintroduce heather and grass species and then start the grazing again and the same with goats goats will eat anything especially trees and really woody stuff. And it's that randomness with animals, isn't it? You don't get with, because I mean, if you go out with a mower, you tend to cut the same block. You, you don't leave odd little bits and bobs. Yeah. And it's that randomness of animals being just selective eating as well as just moving around, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's like I said about the mosaic. It's like they're just the moving around. They create loads of areas where they'll obviously always eat somewhere, which is nice sweet grass. But then by them doing that, they're, they're creating a few rank areas. And even in such a, like, a piece of chalk grass, you can have various different habitats, which are great for various different animals. So like by having long and short areas, it's, it's offering the most for that piece of ground to the most amount of animals and plant species. So we talked a lot about grass, but we was talking about bushes. But that's the difference between grazing and browsing. What, what's the difference there? So grazing is the, the animals eating grass specifically, and they're, they're constantly eating it, whereas browsing is where they are picking at various other stuff. So they'll be picking at the sides of trees. They'll be picking at the sides of bushes. You've got something like a Herdwick sheep, which is a renowned browser. So they will happily graze on scrubby stuff rather than grass. Um, you've got like goats will happily graze on wood and that kind of stuff cows less so will graze on tree species they will take new saplings but they won't eat the bark of it they'll just eat the leaves off so by them browsing is just they're not intensively grazing that area they're just they're, they're picking at it and they're creating holes they're creating areas where other species can get in so what animals do we use when with our grazing in the countryside service we apparently have cows and sheep so we've got a real mixture at the moment, I think, but mostly centering on Highlands, about Galloways and a few Sussex um, grazing in the county. Um, the Highlands are more centred on Staunton and the Portsmouth water ground on Staunton Country Park. Um, and the Belties are grazing on a various few other little sites. We've got a large group of uh, sheep, uh, which are Clin and Romneys. Again, they're grazing on the chalk grass and mostly. So like I said, like sheep are synonymous with grazing the downs they're the result of in the past sheep grazers would have been grazing their sheep on the downs in the day and then all of the drovers tracks you see on the northern side of the, the downs are where they would take their sheep off at night and then take them down to their arable ground and that would remove the nutrients from the downland that's why the downland we say downland is uh, nutrient poor it's because over hundreds of years farmers have been grazing their sheep on the downs and then moving them down at night and then they poo supposedly on the arable land so i've i've read in the past that farmers in sussex had managed to train their sheep not to poo on in the day that they had trained them to poo only at night i don't know how believable that is but 
that is, I don't know if it's anecdotal or anything, but I've read it and we've got a big group of ponies as well grazing um, alongside sheep up on Butter Hill and over on Danebury Iron Fort. Yeah. And also we've got some heath and grazing up in the north of the county with some ponies as well. So which ponies are we using there? They're Exmoors. So they are on loan from the Exmoor Pony Society. So we do all the management and we look after them. And then if we ever decide that we no longer need the ponies, then they're sent back. The beauty about ponies is they require very little management from us. So we can simply turn them out and allow them to do what they want to do, really. They they just go and graze. They look after themselves. We don't need to do any, any sort of physical manual work with them. Whereas with sheep and cattle, there is a there is a, a lot of work that sometimes needs to go in with them. So catching them, treating them for various problems and that kind of thing. So ponies are less maintenance for us. And some of the breeds you've mentioned, the Gal- Belted Galloways and Highlands, I mean, they're all what are considered traditional breeds, aren't they? What's the benefit of using breeds like that? So, yeah, we, we call them native breeds. So they're breeds that have been bred in the UK. And if you think about a lot of our UK species, we might be a small island, but we have loads of different breeds and all of those breeds have been bred for a specific function mostly they've been bred to deal with a specific geographical function so south down sheep is synonymous with the south downs because that's the sheep that they use to graze the grass the herdwick is synonymous with the lake district because it was hardy it could survive outside all year round it didn't need to do anything it hefted as well so it could graze on the mountainside and then you've got like the belted galloway was they don't really know where the belt came from but they're grazing up on the sort of the lowlands of Scotland and they're great for that. So, and the Sussex as well was a draft animal, but it's synonymous with the grazing of the weald. So these animals are often bred for those specific areas and we should be using those to our advantage because they can convert usually very, very low quality forage into great biodiversity gain, but also great high welfare low input meat and that's somewhere that conservation grazing is also heading into is linking food production with the benefit that it can do to the natural environment we talked about the actual ponies because i mean they're the closest thing we've got in britain to one of the primitive wild ponies isn't it they do look they're all pretty much the same color and they do look like a proper wild horse don't they yeah yeah they do and you probably, if you went to Europe and saw some wild horses, they probably wouldn't be much too dissimilar to what you would see over there. So yeah, they have had, they have had very little sort of input and change. And the same with like a Herdwick, they have had very little change over hundreds of years since the since the Vikings brought them over. So there's there are breeds out there that haven't had much change at all. Like about the Galloway hasn't changed since since I think the 1600s when the belt was originally introduced to the to the Galloway herds and that hasn't changed at all. So is there any sort of particular favourites you have amongst the breeds or the animals you have at the moment? Uh, I have a soft spot really for Belter Galloways and Sussex cows. Uh, Belties, I think, are just great conservation graziers, but they are, uh, how do I, sassy, I guess. They're a little bit harder to manage. They still, a lot of them still think they're grazing free on the highlands, whereas they're not, and they can be a bit funny. So, uh, when I used to work for National Trust, we used to graze a large piece of common land near Liphook called um, Chapel Common. And that was a 350-acre piece of open heathland. And those girls would be out there for six, seven months of the year. And if I turned up, so it would be mostly me checking them every day. If I turned up with someone else 
on that day, they would be like, nah, you're doing something with us today. And they would run off into the other end of the, the heathland, into the woodland and not want to be caught. So, or if they heard a rattling of a trailer, game over and that kind of thing. But then like, I love a Sussex cow just because they're so quiet, they're docile, they're they're great at converting the, the down and so they're my sort of two soft spot sort of cows I have. So, yeah. And they're very attractive little things. They're quite fluffy. They're like little teddy bears, don't they, in some ways? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, used to, we used to have little volunteer groups checking them, and they used to, the little Facebook group for, for Chapel was sort of like the Guinness cows, and people would always be saying they're really easy to spot. So that's the other beauty with a belty is you can spot them from a mile away. I remember quite a few years ago, way before you started, they just, one of the teams decided they're down on Hailing Island and they had a site which basically was right on the coast. They decided Shetland Cal was a nice breed to try. Um, now, Shetland Cal, they're in the Shetland Islands, and they used to be in swam across to other islands rather than transport within boats. Um, so they turned up with these, these cattle, and um, one of them immediately did, thought, OK, I'm going for a swim, and it swam out into the middle of Langston Harbour. And the staff are going, what are we going to do now? I think we had to get the Langston <laughs> Harbour master to come and herd it back in again. Uh, I think we got rid of them quite soon after that because their ability to swim wasn't really taken into account when we put them next to Langston Harbour. Yeah. I think like, that just shows that, num- that you can take a cow or out of the highlands, but it still wants to do... But it's, it's, it's that genetic inside them that that's what they want to do sort of thing. And like I know like the um, in Northern Ireland, they, they move their cows, they make them swim across one of the locks to get to the grazing that they get to, and they make sure the cows are showing the calves how to do it. So, And then that herd has always grazed that area and that herd know where to graze. They know where not to graze. You know, they don't, these cows and animals especially are not stupid. They know where, they know how the grass works. They know where to graze. They, they, they work it out themselves. So it's like, I'm really keen on using those animals to their full extent and not just pushing them around, making them graze where you want to graze. It's allowing them to show you where they want to graze where the important parts are. And then sort of if you need to focus them, you can then focus them. So we clearly use a lot of grazing animals for very important reasons on our sites. And uh, that might be the downlands of uh, places like Danbury Hill Fort or the New Forest Commons. What are some of the issues with people um, people coming to those sites? I think obviously there's the obvious problem of like dogs and people coming into contact with their livestock. Um you know, cows are really, really big, intimidating animals. And if you were to come across a big field of those, it can be really, really scary. Sheep are, um, unfortunately, a really nice chasing toy by dogs. Um, so I think I've I've been quite lucky in the environments that I've worked in, in that the public have always understood that the grazing comes first and the grazing is is the management tool that we have decided to use to keep that special place that they love to walk in to keep it special and to enhance it in the future so it's a real it is a battle but it's about getting that positivity message across to people so it's just saying look we know the grazing's coming we know it's difficult but we we try to minimize it and to offer you alternatives so when i have grazed the south downs before we would block graze so i would make sure the cattle were in a specific area and then I would also make sure there were no footpaths or minimal footpaths going through that area. But I also made sure there was an alternative route for everyone. And I would also set up the next pen ready so that people knew where the cows were moving into and the sheep were moving into. So 
I think as land managers, we we have we have a responsibility to to really clearly communicate that message that what we're doing isn't to annoy people; it's to make those special places more special. And then we also have the opportunity to say, well, by doing this and making this place special, we're also providing some really really good quality meat into the into the into our food system. So, which is better for us as well yeah it's quite a balancing act sometimes because we do you know some people sometimes get concerned about particularly cows with horns you know there are stories where people have been attacked by cattle but we're always quite careful in what which animals we select put on what land is it particularly where we've yeah. got public access yeah so i'm quite rigorous um anything that shows an ounce of aggression um, it will not go out on site on any public site, not even a, a closed field with a footpath going through. Um, we don't do anything like that. Um, every animal is assessed before it goes out. Um, so we do it on a, like a five-point scale. So we'll just check its docility and that kind of thing. And have we had any problems in the past and that kind of stuff? So we're quite rigorous in making sure. But I can't, I can't guarantee that every animal, because it's about the situation. So it's sort of a funny story. Is I'll get on chapel. Uh, I had a really panicked phone call one morning to say, I've just been chased by your cows. And so speaking to the lady, I was like, trying to find out what was going on. I was like, really sorry. And she sort of said she was calling for her dog that had gone running off. And it appears that I think the cows just thought that they were being called. So they they weren't running over to be aggressive. They were running over thinking someone's calling us because they've got food. So be really, it can be as simple as that, like just cross wires. But I know... I'm, I know they are big animals and they are really scary because sometimes they're scary for me. Yeah, because I know, particularly places like the New Forest, there is a bit of an issue with people treating the ponies like uh, almost like pet ponies when they're mm. they're, they're semi wild, aren't they? And people feed them, and then yeah, then the ponies associate the people with the feed, and then the horses start approaching the people, don't they? Yeah, yeah. So again, it's like getting that message across saying these are wild animals. Essentially, you need to treat them like wild animals and give them the respect they deserve. And by encouraging, say, a pony to come and eat from your hand, you're opening yourself up to maybe get bitten, to get kicked, you know. And the animal then also loses its its wild instincts a little bit. And especially for ponies, like then they might they they will maybe stop grazing because they know they're going to get treats and they know they're going to get food from elsewhere, from visitors and stuff. So, um, yeah, we need to communicate that. That, that these are wild animals essentially and and we need to allow them to do what they need that, that we've asked them to do so i mean in the main there isn't a lot of issues i mean occasionally you get small issues that say we, you know some they thought they were being called for food uh, we get a few probably you know a few elements where dogs are allowed to chase sheep um and we've had lost animals because of that but um we're really quite careful where we put our animals and we always try and work to educate people as well don't we yeah so um yeah so i was really heavily involved with the uh Heathlands reunited project and part of that we um jointly ran with them and the uh wildlife trust we jointly ran something called um take the lead and also we did this uh event called uh hairy not scary so we allowed people general public to come to the farm and then with their dogs that was really important that they came with their dogs we had a dog behavioral uh lady there and we talked about sort of responsible walking of dogs in the countryside. And then we then took the dogs and the owners in with the cows and the sheep. And we sort of 
I spoke about like this is how the cows react. This is what, what I would I would like you to do. This is what you should like should and shouldn't do. So it's little things like if you if you walk into an area that's a footpath, a field that's a footpath, got cows in it, and you're not comfortable with walking through. Nine times out of ten, a farmer will quite be more than happy for you to walk around the edge of his field. If that's what makes you feel comfortable, then walk around the edge of his field with the dog on the lead. Um, or if you can see an alternative route, just take it. That if you were to see a farmer and explain, I'm a bit scared, you know, I didn't want to walk through your cows. Nine times out of ten, they'll be more than happy to accommodate you walking differently. So that's all I always said at the trust was like, if you can find an alternative route find the alternative route but we will always do our best to not block footpaths to we will try to segregate footpaths from grazing blocks you know so it's a it was a sort of a two-way street really so but the the i think the national park is still running those um those sort of courses so if anyone's interested on going on um definitely just go on the national parks uh website and see when the next one's being offered We've talked quite a bit about grazing animals, but what other things do farmers do to encourage wildlife in their other management they do on a site? So um, a lot of farmers, especially on arable ground, are um, they're encouraged to install um, wider field margins, winter stubble, headlands, pollinator strips. These are primarily to uh, allow sort of to be wildlife havens for one and wildlife corridors. So wildlife can freely move between different fields and different habitats but also the pollinator strips and the beetle banks and that are really really important for pollinators in general so they're they're providing a different pollination source for insects and stuff so here at manor we put in sunflowers and that is great for bees but then by encouraging the bees to the sunflowers we're also encouraging them to our our arable crops as well so we're trying to encourage sort of as much cross-pollination from as many different species as possible. And then winter stubble is really, really important for win winter overwintering birds. And also it's really important for a lot of farmers to be sort of not leaving bare ground over winter. So they're encouraged to either undercrop a group of wheat with, say, like with stubble turnips or something like that, or they're encouraged to plough and put in spring uh, winter crops as quickly as possible and to try and avoid having bare soil because that's the worst thing is that having bare soil in the winter it rains really really heavy and all your soil disappears down into the into the river and one that clogs up the river and all the drains causing flooding and but two you have just lost all of your nutrients that you've been putting into that ground for however many years you've literally just washed it down the drain so you have to start again and we had feel we were a sandy soil base and we had a really 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 bad farmer and there were gullies deep enough you could hide a land rover in that's how bad soil erosion can be and that is really really bad management so like we managed to change the system and they said like let's put this all these these are at risk fields and next to the next to the river let's make sure they're always grass or they're always cropped but you're not or you're not putting high risk crops in say like maize which is really nutrient intensive but also is a late cropping season so most of the time on wet soil if you get your maize out you haven't got time to put your next crop in so we were sort of just trying to work with farm our, our tenant farmers to to think more broadly and to think about what crop they were putting in next and how that crop can impact on the wider environment because the last thing that we wanted for the heathland was for 
the soil from the next door field to come wash onto the onto the heath and it would put the whole low nutrient system back a couple of decades so at manor farm itself you've you've mentioned some of the work you do what, what else do you do at manor farm itself to encourage wildlife um so obviously unfortunately we're closed like many other businesses at the minute but we're taking the opportunity to make some real real um good deep changes to the farm and to especially put in some sort some more wildlife friendly areas so a wednesday conservation volunteer group they have kindly made us a load of bird owl and bat boxes they will be going up this hopefully tomorrow i'll be popping them up ready for the spring um we've put in a couple of wildflower strips inside the pay zone so um if you come and visit you'll see that on a couple of the tracks we've narrowed them slightly and then on the side we then put in some real still wildflower strips we're planning to convert some of the fields outside of the pay zone that we use as backup grazing and hay production we're planning this year to uh turn that into more traditional hay meadows so we're going to re-plow that return the nutrients to the soil and then we're going to reseed it with some local provenance uh, hay meadow seeds and really turn that into a nice nutrient poor hay meadow in the future and then we've also been putting in quite a few new ponds as a twofold one for the all the extra sort of the uh, the extra habitat offers for all our invertebrates and wildfowl and stuff like that but also as a way of capturing some of the water that we get on the farm because it's really wet and it's really wet at the minute so we're hoping that we can funnel some of that water off of our farmland and into those ponds and then stop it going into the handball so quickly and um, hopefully do our part to uh, increase the the biodiversity of the handball. Well, that's been fascinating, Rob, and hopefully we can all get out and actually start enjoying some of this again once uh, once we get past this current lockdown and I can come out and see you on site. Yeah, that'd be really good. And um, obviously, hopefully lockdown can end soon, but we're coming up to like lambing. So we've got lambing already prepped and ready to go in March. Play Barn is ready to go as well. So, so Man has really taken the opportunity to enhance itself and to make a much better offering for everyone from when everyone can revisit fantastic hope to see you soon you soon so that was really good hearing what rob has to say about our farmland and it's really easy for us to access farmland with the miles and miles of rights away we have here in hampshire but you have to remember that when crossing farmland you are on somebody else's land and you must respect that by not letting your dogs run through the crops, staying on the line of the path, even if it's muddy, and always remembering to take your litter home. Yeah, and I think it's increasingly important these days as well, because we know more people are getting out in the countryside. But it's all about following the countryside code and ensuring you know what to do where when you're out and about and exploring. I have a fun fact about farming, Andy. Do you want to hear it? Uh, well, you know we always enjoy these fun facts. So did you know that farms produce over five and a half million tons of potatoes each year that is a lot of potatoes i'll have to think about that when i'm boiling up my new potatoes for dinner tonight yeah well it's enough to cover 120,000 football pitches <laughs> that is a lot isn't it <laughs> yeah it is a lot well thanks for tuning in i hope you enjoyed that and remember we'd love to hear from you with any comments or thoughts or if there's anything you'd like us to discuss in a future episode you can let us know through our social media pages. And we'd really appreciate it if you rate and review our podcast on iTunes as this helps other people find us. For now, thanks again for listening. I'm Andy Davidson. And I'm Carly Harrod. See you next time.